Good morning. Thank you for getting their heart rates up because you never know if they're going to fall asleep this morning. I, uh, I get teased a lot because I'm a Presbyterian. It doesn't mean that I don't love the Holy Spirit. I love the Holy Spirit. In fact, I'm speaking a lot about the Holy Spirit this morning. I'm one of those strange Presbyterians that likes to speak about the Holy Spirit. It just means I don't have rhythm. That's all it means. And, and some, for some reason, my hands only go this high. It's, it's a personal defect. I don't know. Well, good morning. My name is Zach Carden, and I'm one of the pastors on staff here. Um, and I want to add to what Dr. Youssef and Jonathan said about the discipleship class that's starting this Wednesday. Uh, now, we've said that's for those who are ages 22 to 55. Now, I want to answer a couple questions in regard to that. First question is, um, why do we say that ages 22 through 55 is the next generation? Some of you are like, 55, I, I don't feel like the next generation. Uh, in fact, I feel like my check engine light's coming on. Um, no, see, that ages 55 to 22 represent uh, the generations uh, X, uh, millennials, and generation Z. And I want you to add 20 years to those numbers. So in 20 years, that group of people are going to be 42 to 75. And those who are 42 to 75 now are really the leadership generation of the church. They're the ones who are discipling. They're the ones who are pouring into. They're the ones who are leading and praying and, and making sure that the church stays on course. So we want to do our best to pour into the leadership generation that's coming up after so if you're, if you're saying, well, then why did I not get an invite to this? Why well, I'm not in that age group. Well, the, the reason is you are already leading. We have chosen disciples from the leadership generation, and we're training and pouring into them so they can pour into others. Now, your question might be, well, what do I do on Wednesday nights now? Come pray. Because without prayer, without the power of the Holy Spirit, without your prayers, which are effective, we can't accomplish the work of discipling the next generation. So we would invite you, if you're 22 to 55, go to apostles.org, sign up so we know that you're coming. Dr. Yusuf will be doing the first one, then we'll have a rotation of different teachers throughout. Now, if you'll turn to Acts 1, 1 through 11 in your Bible, Acts 1, 1 through 11, that's page 1690 in your pew Bible, I want you to open that. I want you to keep me accountable here. I want you to see the word in front of you, that I'm not making this stuff up. That's, that's very important to me. We're going to take a look at the mission Luke shares with Theophilus, words which should drive our mission today as a church. Big C church, little C church, should drive both missions. Acts 1, 1 through 11. In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day that he was taken up to heaven, after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. After his suffering, he showed himself to these men and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave this command, do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about, for John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So when they met together, they asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? 
And he said to them, It is not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. After he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid him from their sight. They were looking intently up into the sky as he was going, when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this is your word. These are your very instructions to your people. This is your very mission that you've given us. Father, not only help us be mindful about the mission that you've given us, empower us by your Holy Spirit because without him we can do nothing. We need his power to be able to preach the gospel to all nations, to disciple others, and most importantly to see revival come to our world. Lord, we pray that you will open our hearts during this time and that you would apply this word to our hearts. And having applied it, that somehow we will be changed by it today. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, I was recently cleaning out a drawer in my house. We all have the junk drawer, right? All the drawer that we throw stuff into. Some of us have rooms we throw stuff into. Um, And I found this. Uh, you might not be able to see it from where you're sitting, so I've got a, a one that I'm going to show up here. <laughs> now, this one is not mine. I've got one of the newer ones, but this one was uh, Chris Holton, one of our members here. He also, some months after I found mine, he found his in a drawer. And his is older because it's laminated. You can see it's laminated. Um, for those of you who are too young to remember this card... Let me, let me explain. So in the 90s, if you were dating, had a family, um, you know, whatever, you remember what it's like to go to Blockbuster on the weekend and have the, the traditional Blockbuster fight, right? Over which movie you're going to rent. Because one of you wanted to rent Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure, and the other person wanted to rent that, rent that two-tape version of The English Patient. <laughs> right? And man, you just did everything you could to avoid that because it was two tapes worth. And for those of you who don't remember videotapes, I'm not going to explain that. (laughs) But there were DVDs as well. And and Blockbuster at one time, I mean, here's the deal with Blockbuster, right? You remember you'd go to checkout and there would be a $20 late fee. And you're thinking, this is, this is highway robbery. I am not going to rent, but I need to see this copy of the, of, the, of the English patient. I've got to see it. So I'm going to pay the $20 because you were maybe one hour late returning that, that tape or that DVD. Um, but the thing is that Blockbuster had a monopoly on video rentals in the 90s. And those of you who, yes, we used to actually have to go to stores to rent videos. And... They had 9,000 stores at one point in their, in their company's history. Why am I talking about Blockbuster this morning, you may be wondering? Because Blockbuster's not here anymore. I mean, you, you go by their stores and, and there's something else. I mean, I, I remember recently I pointed out to my girls, that used to be the Blockbuster. So why are they not here? Well, 
many people say that it was a failure to innovate, and that might be part of it. You know, Blockbuster uh, was, though, innovating. If you, if you remember back that far, uh, and, and here's a bit of information for the younger generation, Netflix used to be mail-in DVDs, you used to get DVDs by mail. And so they started uh, you know, working in on Blockbuster's territory by sending DVDs by mail, and they also had that little streaming service thing going on. Uh, Blockbuster had a DVD by mail thing. So they were innovating, and uh, they did have an opportunity to buy Netflix for $50 million in 2000, and the CEO of Blockbuster laughed them out of the room. That was probably a failure to look ahead, I would say. A little bit short-sighted. But I would argue that it's more than just a lack of innovation. Blockbuster had forgotten their mission statement. And when they forgot their mission statement, they forgot the reason why they became so popular, and they put mom-and-pop video stores out of business in the first place. So let's take a look at their mission statement. The mission statement of Blockbuster is to be the global leader in rentable home entertainment by providing outstanding service, selection, convenience, and value. Now, outstanding service. Let's talk about that. Now, they knew that the late fee, th late fee thing irritated people. Um, it was no secret, but instead of letting it go, they doubled down, they, they doubled down on it at one point. Uh, meanwhile, Netflix charged a monthly fee, and you could keep that DVD as long as you wanted to and just send it back in when you were ready. Selection and convenience. Netflix had a great, a great selection. Now, it wasn't as convenient because back then you had to get it by mail. Uh, but they did have that little video streaming thing that was beginning to catch on. Um, Blockbuster, you could go in and get any DVD you wanted, providing it was actually there. So when you went on Netflix, you could actually order it and just wait for it to come to you. So selection and convenience, they were beginning to lose traction. Lastly, value. Netflix and Redbox both had lower overhead costs than Blockbuster. Blockbuster had 9,000 brick-and-mortar stores, and buildings were losing uh, they were losing billions of dollars because of all that. Now, imagine an alternate universe where they had actually bought Netflix and they had laughed at them. And they were able to turn the corner there, reduce their, their overall you know, brick-and-mortar situation, and continue to fulfill this mission by providing value. No more late fees. You don't have to worry about it. They would still be a global leader in outstanding service selection, convenience, and value. But they thought that they were too big to fail but they're no longer here. They went bankrupt. So again, why have I spent so much time talking about Blockbuster on a Sunday morning? Because it's a powerful story of what can happen when you fail to be true to your mission statement. We live in a time when there are a lot of missions and agendas competing for the church's attention. There are many good pursuits and godly things that compete for the church's attention, but likewise there are some very ungodly agendas that compete for the church's attention. But Jesus makes it clear on what our mission statement is in here, here in Acts 1, 1 through 11. Christ calls us in the power of the Holy Spirit to pursue his mission rather than our or any other agenda. Where am I getting that? Look at verses three through six. After his suffering, he showed himself to these men and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. 
So when they met together, they asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Now, Jesus had spent 40 days teaching them about the kingdom, but when they make a statement like this, it's clear they, they probably didn't get what he was, still get what he was talking about. Now, we need to read between the lines here because it says, when they met together in verse 6, where are they meeting together? Well, verse 12 tells us that they, that they leave the Mount of Olives after this. So what's happening is they're standing on the Mount of Olives between verses 6 and 12. Those events are going on with them having an incredible view of the Temple Mount in Jerusalem below. And the disciples were asking this question, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? It seems like a nice way of saying, is this the time you're going to bring the smack down on the Romans? Are you, be- are you ready to light them up? I mean, they crucified you. You came back. You have some serious power. I can't wait to see what's getting ready to happen. You brought us up here on the mountain, so I guess you're, you're, you're going to show us an incredible view of you kicking the Romans out of Israel. Because you see, the agenda of the first century Jewish culture was about one thing. Get rid of the Romans. And that seems like a good agenda, doesn't it? I mean, after all, wouldn't God want Israel to be free from a foreign power? And yet Jesus had already told them, had they been listening, that not one stone was going to be remaining on the temple. That he would actually allow the Romans to come in and raise Jerusalem. He had predicted the destruction of Jerusalem at the hands of the Romans. So at every turn, the disciples seemed to misunderstand Jesus' mission about what he primarily wanted them to do because they were filtering it through the lens of their own personal or cultural agenda. Now here they are waiting expectantly perhaps for that Jonah, as Jonah waited on the outskirts of Nineveh hoping that God would rain fire down on Jerusalem, and yet, I mean on uh, Nineveh, and yet Nineveh repents. And they're sitting there waiting for the same thing to happen, and yet Jesus is telling them that's not what's going to happen at all. In fact, they're going to go into all the world and they're going to make disciples. They're going to be his witnesses. I think it's truly hard for the disciples to process it all. In fact, even after Jesus' ascension, they still seem to be looking up, waiting for something. Okay, there he goes. What's going to happen next? They're just waiting, and they're waiting. And they're thinking, surely, surely this is not what comes next. Surely he's going to come down and, and really rain some fire down. And it says, after, the, after he said these things, he was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid them from their sight. They were looking intently into the sky as he was going, when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking up into the sky? This same Jesus who has been taken from you to, into heaven will come back in the same way you have seen him go to heaven. So, They're sitting there, and they have to have the angels tell them, it's time to leave the mountain, and it's time to get to work on what Jesus has called you to do. They keep missing it. So why do they keep missing it? Well, they don't yet have the Holy Spirit. That's why Jesus tells them to wait for the power of the Holy Spirit to enlighten them, to rebuke them, and to generally help them remember what they are called to do. He says it twice here. Look at verses 4 and 5. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command, 
Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my Father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. And then again in verse 8, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. This is why I think it's warranted to say Christ calls us in the power of the Holy Spirit to pursue his mission rather than our agenda. Otherwise, we tend to drift toward what we think the mission is. And there are times throughout Acts and the epistles where Peter and the other apostles can drift. I mean, at one point, Peter drifts so much that it actually takes Paul's rebuke to get him back on course. I love Peter. He gives me hope for myself, especially when I tend to drift from the mission that Christ has called me to. But we must be in absolute dependence upon his spirit to be able to fulfill his mission. We cannot do it any other way. It's not possible in our own strength, period. And we see that when we engage in mission, even with the the Holy Spirit indwelling us, there are times where we tend to drift from what he has called us to do. And we have to have the Holy Spirit continually bring us back to the main thing. So what is the main thing? What is the mission to be witnesses to the world? Look at verse 8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and the ends of the earth. And when you couple that with what he's already said in the Great Commission in Matthew's Gospel, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. The mission boils down to this, to take the Gospel into all the world and make disciples. But of whom? That's where it gets interesting. He says, Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and the ends of the earth. And when we think about that, we think about that as a regional progression. And it is a regional progression. If you look at Acts, Acts unfolds that way. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the outermost parts of the earth. But it also represents various challenges that the apostles were going to have with their own agendas that the Holy Spirit needed to help them overcome by his power. The task of going into all the world could be seen relationally as well in this progression that we are to to be witnesses and to make disciples of of three different categories, of those we know and love, of those we know and do not love, and of those we do not yet know. Well, what are the unique, unique challenges of each? Well, first, we are to witness to and make disciples of those we know and love. Easy, right? Yeah, you laugh because we know it's not. It's not easy at all. Jesus was a divisive figure in the first century. Jesus is a divisive figure in every century. Jesus is an extremely divisive figure right now. Luke records that Jesus said this to his disciples in Luke 12, 51 through 53. Do you think I came to bring peace on earth? No, I tell you, but division. From now on, there will be five in one family divided against each other, three against two, two against three. They will be divided, father against son and son against father, mother against daughter, daughter against mother, mother mother-in-law against daughter-in-law, and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. And some of you feel that profoundly, don't you? You know what it's like. This is a holiday weekend. You're going to gather with friends and family, and inevitably, two things are going to come up. Politics. 
and Jesus and faith. I hope you keep those two things separate, please. Just <laughs> and it's more important to talk about the Jesus thing, but you're going to have fireworks sometimes. Because in our families, we know the closest people to us, we've seen a drift in our culture. And we know many prodigals in our families who at one point were grow, who grew up in the church and they heard all the words of this, every sermon, every Sunday school class, and yet they're drifting from the faith. We need God's help. We need the help of the Holy Spirit, not only to change their heart, but to give us the words and give us a way to approach them and speak the truths of the gospel, not in our own power, because we will continue to fail. We have no idea how the relatives of the disciples really felt about all of this following after Jesus. We do know that Mary and the brothers of Jesus came to Jesus at one point trying to take him away. And Jesus used it as a point of teaching. Some of you have relatives that probably think you've lost your mind with all this Jesus stuff. But there's a larger context than that too. It's the friends and the culture that we grew up in. Those are the people that we know and love. Remember, remember, Jesus was rejected at Nazareth, and he said to those he grew up with, truly I tell you, no prophet is accepted in his own hometown. And you can feel that too. People who grew up with you, who may have seen a former life, eh, I know who you really are. Yes, you do know who I really am. And without the power of Christ, without the power of the Holy Spirit, I wouldn't be who I am today. And when Pentecost rolls around, and the Holy Spirit does come to empower the apostles, look what people say. The Holy Spirit has enabled them to speak languages of, of people all over the world where, where these Jews were coming back for Pentecost. And they were hearing the gospel in the language of the, of the countries they lived in. And they say this in Acts 2.7, utterly amazed, they asked, aren't these who are speaking Galileans? Now, it's SEC time. We're all, you know, we're all behind our own state here, so whatever state that you look down on, uh, I'm not going to mention a state uh, right now, but imagine the person from the most backwater part of that state who was not really well educated suddenly being able to speak French fluently. And that's exactly what was happening here in the context. These people were thinking, these are bumpkins, and yet they can speak all these languages? What's going on? And you see it again when they come before the, uh, the council in Jerusalem. Peter and John appeared uh, before the Dru Jews in Acts 4.13, and it says, when they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished, and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. May that be true of all of us. There were a lot of obstacles, but the Holy Spirit overcame each one. He helped them steer away from their own agenda and stay on his mission empowering Peter not to cast down fire during his sermon in Acts 2, even though, as he said, they had killed the author of life, but instead to, to invite them to eternal life. Because Christ had so transformed Peter's heart, now he understood that what God wanted was the redemption of the Romans, the redemption of the people that, that killed him, the redemption of the world around him, not their destruction at least not until the end of the age. 
That same Holy Spirit who helped the apostles focus on the main thing helps us to do that as well, even with those closest with us. And though we have a thousand points where we differ with our friends and family, the Holy Spirit can help us let go of the ones that do not matter to focus on the ones that have eternal significance to those we know and love. And he's the one who has to help us let those things go because sometimes those things are, are just really important to us. But they're not so important that we cannot have an eternal conversation with our family and our friends. That's the most important thing. That's the main thing. But that wasn't the only challenge they faced and we faced. The next challenge was and is more difficult. We are to witness and make disciples of those we know and do not love. Now, maybe I should say do not like, but there was no love lost between the Jews and the Samaritans. In fact, if they had to get to a point on the other side of Samaria, they wouldn't go through, they would go around because they didn't even want to associate with these people who were half Jews in their mind because they had intermarried with foreigners. And though they had some cultural, uh, though they were culturally similar in some of their, their religion, they did not care for the Samaritans. During, their public minist- during his public ministry, Jesus had a lot to say about the Samaritans, and a lot of times they were set forth as good examples, which really irked the Jews. It bothered them because these half-Jews were viewed as outsiders. These people were the definition of those you know and do not love, people who were considered unworthy to be saved. It's noteworthy that even though Jesus had given the apostles a clear command to go into Samaria, guess who was the first person to go into Samaria? It wasn't an apostle. It was a deacon. It was Philip. Philip had taken Christ at his word, and he had gone to preach to the Samaritans, and the Samaritans repented and believed. And to their credit, John and Peter came to baptize them, and they too were baptized uh, by the Holy Spirit. But the unique challenge to the mission to reach those we know and do not love is our own prejudice to believe that there are people that do not deserve to be saved. I want you to take a moment and ask yourself if you've ever put anyone in that category before. Because the truth is that we all belong in that category. We all belong in the category of those who are unworthy to be saved. And yet Christ saves us. Paul calls himself the chief of sinners and is is the example of the kind of hard-hearted, rebellious people, the persecutor himself, who God saves. Now, I've told this story before here in in many contexts, but it's, it's worth repeating. When I was in school, there was this kid who sat behind me in health class, and he wore all black, and he was a well-known drug user. And he used to lean up and whisper so that the teacher couldn't hear all kinds of horrible things about me into my ear. And I just kept my, my, my focus straight forward. I'm just like, ignore him, ignore him, ignore him. He scared me. He terrified me. If there was somebody in this world that I didn't think was worthy of salvation, this was the guy. One day I saw him at the mall, because that's what we did. We went in the 90s, we went to Blockbuster, and we also went to the mall sometime in the same day. (laughs) And I saw him with one of his friends. And the moment I saw him and we made eye contact, I turned heel 
to go the other way. And then he called out my name. I didn't even know this guy knew my name. I thought I was whatever he called me when he whispered into my ear. But he knew my name, which terrified me even more because it means he was thinking about me. <laughs> Probably how he was going to hurt me. And here was the opportunity because now he has a friend. And they come, and this friend, blank expression on his face. So I can't go anywhere. I mean, I'm not going to actually take off and run in the mall, right? Because the mall cop would come get me. Anyway, so he, he stops me, and he comes towards me, and he hugs me. And I'm standing there like this going, what is going on? And he tells me, There will be one sermon I don't cry in, I promise you. I've come to know Jesus. And the reason I'm walking around the mall is to find people I know so I can tell them that. And I told him I was a believer. And he invited me to a Bible study. And I went to that Bible study. He and I became his closest brothers. And I walked with him through the struggles of addiction because that didn't just go away. And every time he failed, it broke his heart. And he had to have his friends remind him of the gospel over and over again. But I had put him in a category of people who could not be saved. Worse than that, I put him in a category of people I didn't want to be saved. Shame on me. Shame on me. That category doesn't exist, and it should not exist, because I've seen what God can do when he transforms the life of somebody we don't think deserves the gospel. Who's in that category for you? I'm not trying to shame anybody here. But who would you put in that category? Who would you say, that person is unworthy to be saved? I don't ever want to see that person. I don't want to break bread in the new heaven with that person. Because there's some hard work to be done, folks. That's our agenda. And it needs to die at the foot of the cross.
And the Holy Spirit can change our hearts in regard to people that we don't think need to hear the gospel. And he can compel us to share the gospel with them because I'm telling you what, this world is not changing without revival and revival will not come unless we take the gospel to people that we know we think don't deserve it. But lastly and finally, those we know and love, those we know and if we're honest we do not love, and finally we are to witness to those we do not yet know. To the outermost parts of the world, how scary is that? That the Jews who had a passion for their homeland, who did not want to go anywhere apart from the temple, he's calling them to leave. They're listening to him and they're saying, you mean you want me to leave home and go out there where I've never been before? Yes. Samaritans were one thing. At least they had something in common with them culturally. But the outermost parts of the world, those were Gentiles. Are you kidding? I mean, the Gentiles worshipped heathen gods. The Gentiles had ethics that would make a rugged Galilean fisherman blush. And let's be honest, some of those people are Romans. Why would we do that? The agenda of a dedicated Jew would be to stay in that promised land and have that temple worship. Yet Jesus was getting ready to knock down the temple to remind them that the temple was within them by the power of the Holy Spirit. And that he was going to take the temple and he was going to take the Holy Spirit into all the world. And that's exactly what he did. He indwelt them for the purpose of taking the Holy Spirit into the world, the gospel, the good news, telling people that the power of God had come to, to overcome every false god they worshipped in this world. And you see it over and over again, every power of every false god broken as they went into each city in Europe, in the Mediterranean, around the world. God was breaking the back of the power of evil. Now, some of you in this room would have an absolute panic attack if I said, make a new friend. We like our people. We like the familiar. If I said, go make a friend who holds absolutely none of your beliefs, you would probably want to throw something at me. Please don't. The only loose things we have here right now are Bibles, so please don't throw Bibles at me. But is that not, in essence, the mission that Christ has called us to? when he says, go into all the world, the, the outermost parts of the world, these people don't share your views. Reach the lost means to step into the world and out of our comfort zone, to be in friendships in which we can point people to the gospel. Now, if you're not strong enough to be in a friendship with someone who doesn't hold your world and life view, I urge you to be strong enough to be discipled more before you can do that. But if you are in the position where you of strength we are to engage other people with the gospel. And I'm not just preaching at you. I'm preaching at me. I should save some of my friend bandwidth for people who are not like me. Finding something, anything that we can share is a mutual love that I can then speak to them about the gospel. Developing a friendship and bringing the gospel to bear on their lives, that's how we ended up with C.S. Lewis, to be honest with you. Uh, if it hadn't been for the friendship of J.R.R. Tolkien, Hugo Dyson with C.S. Lewis 
we would not have C.S. Lewis, the Christian author. I want that to sink in. What drew those men together was a love of myth. They loved talking about ancient myth because all of them were humanities guys. And so they'd have hours. I know that most of you are thinking, how in the world does someone talk for hours about myth? But they did. And one night that went way into the wee hours of the morning at 4 o'clock a.m., J.R.R. Tolkien convinced C.S. Lewis that Christianity was the true myth. What, what did he mean by that? He meant that everything, every shadow of what myth was trying to tell to us about dying and rising gods, that was just a fiction pointing to the real thing, which was Christianity. And, and C.S. Lewis in, in C.S. Lewis fashion had to turn it over and over in his mind, and it, he came to the point of realizing that Tolkien was right. And he was converted. And we are beneficiaries of that conversion today. Now, Tolkien was no extrovert. He, had, he has been described as one of the most introverted introverts of them all. I mean, the man created worlds. He created his own language. Elvish. He lived in this rich world of his own imagination. And yet, God compelled him to step out of that world to befriend a man like C.S. Lewis. Clive Staples Lewis, Jack. He stepped out of his world to be able to share Christ with a man who was unlike him in so many ways. He calls us to the same. There are a lot of agendas that can crowd out our mission. Interestingly enough, Jesus' response to the disciples' agenda wasn't, haven't you guys been listening? But it was in verse 7, he said to them, it is not for you to know the times or the dates the Father has set by his own authority. Jesus' goal was to change the people, not the culture. And here's the thing. God calls us to change hearts and lives. And in changing hearts and lives, the culture changes. Um, a man named Tom Holland, I'll end with this. A man named Tom Holland, not the guy who played Spider-Man for all the younger people in this room. This guy is a secular historian. He's not a believer at all. He wrote a book called Dominion. And he asked the question, as a historian, why is it that if Greek, Greeks and Romans were the ones that were really the culture shapers of their day, why is it that the world's ethical system looks so different than the Romans and the Greeks. And you know what his conclusion was? Jesus. This secular man's conclusion was Christianity had shaped the world. Not because the agenda was to set out to do that. The agenda was to set out and make disciples. And in making disciples, it changed the world that we know. And if God could do it then, God can do it now. If he tarries and we're waiting another thousand years, God can and will revive the hearts of people. And we're called to that mission to be vessels for that revival. Are you in a discipleship relationship with someone? Are you discipling someone? I urge you in that. Because we all need to be discipled by someone. We all need someone pouring into us and we need to be pouring into other people. May God guide us in our mission so that we do not lose sight 
of the main thing. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we all, if we're honest with ourselves, have different things that we want to pursue. We have so many callings in our life. We have professional callings you've called us to. We have other ministry callings that you've called us to. But the primary mission, Lord, help us to remember our primary mission is to see hearts and lives changed in this world, to see disciples made of all the nations. And Lord, empower us towards that end. Give us the ability by the Holy Spirit to overcome every bit of agenda in our own heart and life that would prevent us from reaching those we know and love, those we know and, and do not love, and, and those we're actually terrified of going to, to, to meet because we don't know them. Because only your Holy Spirit can. He is the power. And it's in his power, in the name of Jesus, that we pray. Amen.